It's a lot of work getting here. There's a lot of work ending last week, a lot of work all this week. And so praise the Lord for everybody who worked for Christ. And here we are, our first service in the new building, first sermon in the new building. Uh, and, and when I preach, sometimes I kick it off with like a little hook, like I learned in preaching class to share a little hook, a little funny something or other to like make you want to listen to me. But uh, I thought first sermon in the new church building, how about I pray? How about I pray that God blesses every sermon that's ever preached from this stage? Does that sound like a good way to start things off to you? Let's, let's close our eyes, let's bow our heads, and let's just pray to the Lord and ask his ministry upon every sermon here. Let's pray. Father, as I begin the first sermon that's preached in our new building, I just pray a special blessing upon your church that gathers to hear from you. Uh, Lord, bless every message that will be preached from this stage from now on. We believe your word is more than the thoughts of man, more than the stories of humanity. Uh, Your word is truth from heaven. No, it's written by the pen of man. It's breathed out by the mouth of God. We trust your word will not return void, but will accomplish your will in the hearts of the listeners. We ask that your voice would be heard by all. Test us, O Lord, and try us. Examine our hearts and minds. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience, Father, and save souls from eternal condemnation. Lord, awaken dead souls to life and be glorified as every one of your promises proves true. Lord, speak. We listen attentively. And it's all for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. The book of Revelation, chapter 3. We are going through the first three chapters of Revelation, and we're finishing that up today. There are seven letters written to seven churches. That's how the book of Revelation starts out. And even though they were written to real churches, they were also written to all churches because the number seven is significant. It means completion. And so the letter written to this church was actually written to all churches. The last letter today is in many ways the hardest. If I had to pick a list of which letter I'd want our church to get, this is the last one I'd put on the list. It was the worst letter for the church to receive In fact, there's not even one good thing Jesus writes to this church. He can't even think of one good thing. It's all bad. But I think a letter like this will get us focused on the right things as a church. So in Revelation chapter 3, the church's name is Laodicea. Uh, Here's a map. This is a map of the region, and uh, you'll see every green dot represents a city that got a letter. And the letter was written, the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. He was spending his retirement in prison on an island called Patmos there in the lower left. But he wrote these letters, and, uh, and Laodicea is the last church to receive a letter. And if I had to summarize what Jesus says to this church, very simply put, here's what he says. Let me in. Let me in. This is the letter that has that famous verse you've heard, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is, this is where it came from. And Jesus tells this church that they need to open up and let him in or his judgment will fall. So check out Revelation chapter 3 and it's verse 14. Here's what it says. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out 
of my mouth. First question Jesus answers for this church is this. Here's the question. This is the most important question you'll ever answer in your entire life. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He begins by introducing the church to truths about himself. Who do you believe that Jesus is? I want you to write this down in your bulletin. Go ahead and jot this down. Do you believe Jesus is, here's the first thing he calls himself, the amen. Write that down. The amen. What does that even mean? Well, we use the word today, right? If you hear something the preacher says that just really stirs your soul, you say, if you hear something that's like so true, you just need to make sure people know you know it's true, you say, right. And, And when you're done, you know, and you're about to eat and you just say a prayer for food, you say, and then you pig out, right? We use the word too. But the word amen, what does it mean? It means what, what has just been said is certain. What has just been said is true. I affirm what has just been said. That's what amen means. And here God says, there's a living amen. There's a person he calls amen. And that person is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the amen. What does he exactly mean by that? Well, God said a whole lot of promises, and then he gave himself an amen, and that amen is Jesus, meaning Jesus is the affirmation of all those promises. God gave us an amen, all the longings that humanity has, all of our hopes, everything that we hope is is then amen in Jesus Christ. Check out 2 Corinthians 1.20. We'll put it on the screen. Hey, say this with me nice and loud. Here we go. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus says, I am the amen. Hey, do you believe Jesus is the amen? The second thing he says is this. He says, I'm the faithful and true witness. Write that down. I'm the faithful and true witness. This phrase comes from Jeremiah 42.5, where God's people ask that God would be a faithful and true witness against them if they don't follow his plan. And so here Jesus says, I am that faithful and true witness who expects you to fulfill God's plan and follow his word. The truth is, Jesus is the full and the final disclosure of God to humanity. Listen, if I wanted to tell you something about myself, I could easily do that. For example, I could tell you one thing about myself. Uh, I used to be the drummer in a heavy metal band. The drummer in a heavy metal band. Do you want to see a picture of me from my heavy metal band days? Yeah? Okay, here it is. This is Metal Ryan. <laughs> there, there I am. And, and that's my girlfriend, Lauren. It's my, we were just boyfriend-girlfriend back then. We're now married. My wife is here. And, and, but back then, we were just dating, and she thought she was dating the bad boy. <laughs> Future pastor. <laughs> so, so that's one thing about me. And the bass player in my metal band invited me to church, told me about Christ. I got saved when I was in college. Now you know something about me but you don't know everything about me. It would take a long time for me to tell you everything I want you to know about me, right? Listen, everything God wants you to know about himself, he's revealed in Christ. Everything God wants you to know about him is revealed in Christ. Wait a minute, I thought there's a whole lot of different people in the Old Testament. Yeah, but the whole Old Testament, every page, God's getting the world ready for Christ to come. Well, in the New Testament, there's all these people in the church that we need to know about and all these truths. Yeah, but the New Testament is just God getting the world ready for Christ to come back. That's how we can say Christ is the true and faithful witness. 
He is the truth of God. He is the witness. He's the full and the final disclosure of God from God. He says something else about himself. He says, I am the amen. He says, I am the faithful and true witness. And then he says, he's the beginning of God's creation. Do you believe Jesus is the beginning of God's creation? You can write that down. Hey, what do you believe about Jesus? Because the Bible teaches that he is the originator. He is the source of everything that's made in the world. I don't mean he was like the first thing God created. He was the one through which everything that was made was made. This is found in Colossians 1.16. We'll put that up on the screen, but it says this, For by him, that's Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Listen, stretch back in your memory and you'll find a moment where you didn't exist. There was a time on this planet when you were nothing, you were nowhere. But go even farther back in time and you'll find a point where there's no universe. Everything in this world didn't exist. And Christ, in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Meaning before anything was made, Jesus was there. He's pre-existent. He's the source of everything that is in this universe. Do you believe Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation? See, Jesus says to this church of Laodicea, you got to get me right first. And then he moves on to talk to them about them. So look at verse 15. He says in verse 14 about himself, then in verse 15 he says, I know your works. See, now Jesus says he's the authority on you. Jesus knows you better than anyone else in your life knows you. And when he says, here's what you are, it's true. And he says, I know your works. That means your spiritual way of life. And he says, you are neither cold nor hot. He said, I want you to be one or the other, but you're neither. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're not one or the other, I'm going to spit you out my mouth. It wasn't a good day in the church of Laodicea when they got this letter. (laughs) I could just imagine the messenger reading it. This messenger perhaps read the other letters to the other churches too. And he's like, you guys got the bad letter. You guys got a really bad letter. How can Jesus tell you how he feels about you? Well, let me show you this one way. Here's what he said. He said, uh, there, you know, I'm going to pretend that, that I've got like some lukewarm water in my mouth. The water in Laodicea was warm. It traveled six miles to get into the city because they didn't have their own water. And it was polluted. It smelled bad. By the time it got there, it like worse than well water. So a visitor who would come and take a drink of their water was just kind of like, so here's, here's what Jesus is like. Here's how I feel about you. He's like, <laughs> oh, that's bad. That's real bad. I don't want to swallow it. that's how Jesus feels about the church in Laodicea wow that's not kind that's kind of graphic and repulsive and Jesus is like yeah I want you to know how I'm feeling about you right now I feel like puking you on the carpet Well, what is it that's making Jesus feel this about this church? 
he uses this idea of temperature as being a problem, and it's something we can all relate to. There are some beverages that you and I, we prefer cold, right? Like, if you, if you got a warm Pepsi, you'd be like, ugh, this is warm. It's like left out. You got any ice? It's warm. Sometimes if you get a coffee from Starbucks and they dump the freezing cold cream in before you pull away, they pull it right from the freezer, and then it's like warm coffee, and you're like, I just paid 18 bucks for warm coffee. I'm going... Have you ever returned coffee to Starbucks? Huh? I've returned coffee to Starbucks. Warm! I'm not paying $25 for warm coffee. I want it hot. We can all relate to this, right? If you've got kids, you know when something goes in a kid's mouth that they don't want to swallow, what happens? It comes right back out. We can all relate to this. Jesus is using this to show them, though, how he feels about them. He doesn't know what to do. He hasn't spit them out yet. He's not quite sure what to do with them, but he's disgusted He's convulsing and he's, he's using their water to show them how he feels about them. I don't know about you, but I don't want Jesus to spit me out on the carpet, so it makes me wonder, who's in this group of people? Well, let's read on a little bit. It says here in verse 16, Because you're lukewarm, you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. What does lukewarm mean? For you say, I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. The church in Laodicea was very wealthy. In fact, in AD 60, there was an earthquake in many of the cities in Rome. And a lot of the cities had to apply for federal aid. Rome, help us. We need to rebuild. But Laodicea was like, we got this. No federal aid needed. Don't come down here. FEMA, no disaster area. We've got enough money to fix our city. They were loaded. He's writing this to a church that in today's dollars would have billionaires sitting out there. All right, just imagine if there's a not just a few. Imagine if there's just a few people who aren't billionaires out here in the crowd, right? It's Laodicea. He's talking to these rich, and they were self-sufficient, and they were self-righteous, and they were either not admitting or they were not seeing just how much they needed Christ. So, who is a lukewarm person in this text? A lukewarm person is a professing Christian. I say professing because there might be some non-Christians who say they're Christians in this group. Professing Christians who are wishy-washy about who Christ is, wishy-washy about what Christ did, not seeing how desperately they need the Lord Jesus Christ. That's lukewarm. That's lukewarm. Now, some scholars try and make this one group of people. Oh, it's only non-Christians. Oh, it's only Christians who haven't, or it's only people. They try and narrow it. I think it actually includes many different kinds of people. It can include the undecided. It can include the ambivalent. It can include those who are vague on what they really think about Jesus. It can include those who are half-hearted toward Christ. It's a lot of different people. And he's saying it to a congregation. He's saying, you make me feel like, because you're lukewarm. I think the best interpretation of what hot or cold stand, stand for would be hot or cold, either one makes Jesus happy. A cold beverage, a hot beverage, become either one. Just What hot or cold means is this. It means a person who's embraced who Christ is. It's a person who's embraced what Christ has done and who is honest about their true condition without Christ. That's a person who's hot or cold. It's fundamentally a worship problem. The lukewarm people are not worshiping Christ properly. That's what it is. If you're lukewarm in your relationship to Jesus, it's sickening to him 
You could just see these people. Can you imagine a room full of like upper class New York executives, business people, People who've made it in life. And can you just picture them hearing about this and saying, well, what does Jesus have that we already haven't earned or inherited? Uh, Answer, everything. Everything. Colossians 2, 2 to 3 says, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Listen, here's the truth. God put everything precious and valuable in one place, in Christ. Have him, have everything. Lack him, lack everything. Everything in your life will gain meaning and value in Christ. Everything in your life will lose meaning and value apart from Christ. And this church was going easy on the Jesus. This church was leaving him out. This church was downplaying how important he really is. And Jesus is like, I'm going to... So the question is, do you believe the truth about Christ? That he's the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation... Listen, if he's a bumper sticker in your life's journey, if he's just a Sunday pit stop, if he's just a footnote in everything else you believe about this world, he's deciding what to do with you. Do you believe the truth about Christ? Here's the second thing. He now wants us to see who we are without him. Why why is he so worked up? I mean, I'm going to church. I believe a few things about him. What's he so upset about? Write this down. Without Christ, I am a few things. These are all found in verse 17. The first one you can write down is this. Without Christ, I am wretched. Uh, Fill that in. Without Christ, I am wretched. The word wretched, I think a good way to to describe for you the word wretched is who who doesn't own a snowblower? You only own a snow shovel. You only own... Okay, Bob. So, Bob, I, I own a shovel too. This winter's been a tough one, am I right? In fact, my shovel's broken. And I just didn't want to go out and buy a new one. So I shoveled this whole winter with a broken shovel. Now, now, okay, Marianne, I want you to imagine Bob coming in after the last time he shoveled the driveway this winter, which was like, what, three days ago? <laughs> it ma- I just want you to get a picture of the look on his face after he shoveled the driveway for the last time. That is what this word describes. The word is wretched. Wretched. And that's you without Christ. That's you. The word that Jesus uses is wretched. It means in miserable distress. That's you without him. The second word used is this, pitiable or, or pitiful. The NIV translates it. Write that down. You're, without Christ, I'm wretched. I'm pitiable. Uh, it means pathetic and, needed, and needing sympathy from others because of how pathetic you are. This is a pretty hard, this is not a seeker-friendly message. <laughs> this, this is the first sermon you're ever hearing at our church. <laughs> Welcome to Harvest. <laughs> but <laughs> you're pitiful. <laughs> pitiful. You know, when I think of pitiful, I think sometimes our dog Spencer does some things that makes him look pretty pathetic. Uh, check this out. These are pets getting themselves into pretty pathetic <laughs> predicaments. Well, I don't know what to do. How do I? Here's the next one. That's a cat. Everybody loves seeing cats get stuck. There's a cat stuck in the blinds. So pathetic. Here's the next one. It's a dog stuck in the couch. (laughs) This last one's the best. This is a dog stuck in a stool. I I don't know how to get it off me. All right, right, leave that up there because without Christ, that's you. The word is pathetic. You're, You're pathetic without Christ. 
He's saying this to the upper, upper class. He's say, can you imagine them all in their robes and their jewelry and their hair all done and they're all sitting there and then the messenger's like, you're all pathetic. You see, they weren't facing, because they weren't embracing the truth about Christ, they didn't want to see the truth about themselves. Do you see how that works? What do you mean I need him? Well, let's talk about who you really are. You're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor. Here's the next one, you're poor. This is a strong word. It means one who crouches, cowers, or begs. In other words, it's the lowest of the low. So here's a picture. Jesus is like, yeah, here's, here's, a, here's you. That's you. He's saying this to, in today's dollars, people who would be billionaires. That's you. Well, how can he say that to them? He means spiritually. Spiritually, that's you. You've got nothing without me. You've got nothing without me spiritually. Nothing of eternal value in your possession, in your portfolio, without me. You're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor. And then here's the next one, you're blind. Write that down, you're blind. Uh, Laodicea had a medical college nearby, so they were known for this eye powder, uh, this eye powder that you could put on, you know, if your eyes got uh, diseased or sick. So it's kind of their thing, you know. So basically what he did is he like, here he's like going to Green Bay and he's like, your, your cheese is moldy. You know, he's, he's insulting their thing. When he tells them they're blind, he's insulting their thing. The eyes were their thing. He's like, you, don't, you can't even see. You want to know what it's like to be blind? It, it's not like this, it's because here you're even seeing a little bit of light, right? It, go like this. Put, go ahead, do it. Put your hand behind your head. Go ahead, come on, do it. How much of your hand do you see? That's what it's like to truly have no sight. And Jesus is like, this is about how much you can see without me. That's how much you need me. You're blind. Here's the last one. You're naked. You're na- <laughs> Jesus just told a bunch of church people to put some clothes on. <laughs> He's, he is not pulling any punches here. He says you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Our son Jared is seven. It's a battle to get him dressed every morning. And if we keep him clothed throughout the day, we're happy. He just has an aversion to clothing. Right here... here These Christians, Jesus, when he sees them, he's like, you're shamefully exposed. You're indecent spiritually. Clothing was another one of their things. You see, they made this, they were famous for this black wool in Laodicea. So they made black outfits, they made black rugs. So clothing, and and also they have banks. Clothing banks and the eye thing was their thing. And Jesus just hit all three of them. You're poor, you're blind, and you're all naked. Welcome to Laodicea. He's insulting them. He's trying to jar them. He's describing their spiritual condition without him. You're exposed. You're immoral without me. So what are they supposed to do? Well, Jesus says here, I counsel you. Look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So what he's saying is, He's going on to the third point here. He asks, who do you believe I am? Here's who I am. Then without Christ, he lists all these things that you're not. And here's the third thing. You can write this down. Here's things only Jesus can make you. Only Jesus can make you. And then he lists a few things here. He, he describes himself as like a store that you can come and shop at. All right, so where do you shop? Shop at Target, shop at Kohl's, shop at Costco. You ever go shopping and you can't find what you're looking for? It's kind of frustrating, right? Like, I can't find these, looking for this certain kind of shoe or this certain, I just can't find it. It's not here. It's frustrating, right? 
Jesus is like telling like he's a store. And he's like, you've got to come to me because I'm the only place where you can get these things. And what is it that he's saying can only be found at Christ? Uh, Everything you already think you have. It can only be found here. And he says, come and buy from me what? He says, well, you you could buy gold from me refined in the fire. So write that down. He says, you you could be rich. Fill that and only Jesus can make me rich. Let's be careful and interpret this the right way. Buying the riches from Christ here doesn't mean that you earn anything. You don't earn your salvation. You can't purchase it. In fact, in Isaiah 55, 1 to 2, we'll put that up on the screen. It kind of clears this up a bit. It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Do you see how he said, come buy it from me, but he said it's free, all right? Meaning you don't have the money for it. You have to wake up to the reality that you need everything that only I can give you. Jesus alone can make me spiritually rich. Be careful with this too because this, some people teach you that Jesus is your jackpot, Right? Come to Jesus and he'll fill your bank account with money and he'll give you the car you've always wanted and he'll, like Jesus is a pinata in the sky, right? He'll just, you just hit him and he'll send all these blessings down. The Bible does not promise you that you'll prosper in this life. The Bible promises you'll prosper in the next life. But Jesus does give you spiritual riches. Can I spend those at Walgreens? No, no. Spiritual riches are different. Colossians 1 talks about how in Christ you have been given an inheritance, which means eternity forever with Christ and the rights as a son, a child of God. Those are the spiritual riches of salvation. But Colossians 2 also talks about the riches of understanding your salvation. Okay, so follow me here. This can both apply to non-Christians who need to come to Jesus to get eternal life. Those are the riches of salvation. It can also apply to Christians who are already saved, who aren't learning about their riches and growing in their riches and resting in their riches. He's saying, come and get what I've secured for you from me. He wants both Christians and non-Christians to come and receive these riches from him. Only Jesus can make me rich. Number two, write this down. This is the second sub-point here. Only Jesus can make me dressed and unashamed. Dressed and unashamed. He says he'll give you white garments. He says he'll give you white garments to a uh, group of people who were probably decked out in the fashionable black wool. He's saying to them, hey, hey, I can dress you in white. This, this black and white contrast here stands for the condition of their soul. Do you know one of the ways Jesus can describe your soul to you as it's been stained? Like, like, like go home and, and, and get your favorite shirt when you go home today. Okay, your favorite, do you have a favorite shirt? Do you have a lucky shirt? Get your favorite shirt, and I want you to, I want you to take it, and, and I want you to pour grape juice on it. Okay, then I want you to roll paint across it. Then I want you to go and clean your car engine with it, and then try and wash it. It's not going to work. And Jesus says, that's your soul before you know me. All right? I can give you white garments. I can wash your soul of all of its stains. I can take away your shameful nakedness. I'm the one who can give this to you. You can get it nowhere else. Only Jesus can make me rich, dressed, and unashamed. Here's the next one. Only Jesus can make me see the light. Can make me see the light. 
you don't know how valuable your sight is until you lose it, right? I was driving on 294 one day, just driving along, driving along, and then I got something in my eye. I wear contacts. Anybody else wear contacts? You get something in your eye with contacts, and then it gets under the contact. It's bad. So I'm driving, I got something in my eye, then I got something in the other eye. <laughs> I'm, I'm on 294, and I'm like, ah, I can't see. Uh, thankfully, one of them, op- like, quickly opened up, and I was able to, like, then get the other one clear. But, f- like, five seconds, and I'm taking cars out with me. You learn how important your sight is at that time. And Jesus says here, without me, this is you going through life. You can't see. You can't see. You're driving blind. And it's only when you meet Christ that the lights come on. See, you you can't see anything of God or know anything about his plan for you or understand this world properly without Christ. Christ is the light of the world. He's the light of the world. And it's a shame when churches go easy on the Jesus. We don't want to offend anyone, so let's just leave Jesus out. We're not going to really talk about him much. We're not going to really sing about him much. And some churches you go to, they just really don't share much about Jesus to you. They, you don't really sing even Christian songs sometimes at churches because they don't want to offend anyone. And it's offensive to Christ. See, my wife and I went on a date one Friday. My dad babysits our kids, and we came home, and he was watching a TV preacher. Okay, and, and he was watching a TV preacher, and he said, yeah, I've been counting the number of times he says Jesus. I haven't counted once yet. You see, and when churches leave Jesus out, when churches go easy, when churches have Jesus on the side, when churches treat Jesus like a little footnote that maybe they get around to every now and then, he wants to vomit them up. Because only Jesus can make us rich, dressed and unashamed, and see the light. Hey, ask yourself this. Have you faced your true spiritual condition without Christ? Is it in any way offensive to think of yourself as wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked without him? Are you in any way angling to try and get your self-esteem propped back up? Well, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm, I'm a religious guy. I I do my best. Are you in any way trying to pick up a little dignity because Christ has stripped you of all of it? Because if you don't face the true reality of your sin, then you won't know that you need a Savior. And here Christ is saying, believe the truth about me because without you, without me, you're nothing and and only I can give you what you truly need. Here's the last point. This This is the punch right in the stomach. This is where he gives them an opportunity to take action. Number four, repent and race to let Christ in. Repent and race to let Christ in. Check out verse 18 again. Verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself. The shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. There's no problem applying this to both Christians and non-Christians. The word love, the word reprove, the word discipline, all three of those words are applied to Christians and non-Christians in the New Testament. He's saying it to the church, filled with professing Christians, some of whom are not saved. And he says to them, be zealous and repent. And then he says about himself, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him 
and he with me. This is, this is the God of the universe, and he describes himself as like, like out, out there. Like, who is that out there? Like, he's, somebody's knocking at the door out there. And you see, he's putting distance between the church and himself. He's saying, you, church, haven't let me in. You've kept me out. You, church, have shut me out. It shows how he's been dishonored. And, and churches can do this. Christians can do this. Okay, while this had an immediate application to the church in Laodicea, it symbolizes so much more. This symbolizes how you can keep Christ shut out of areas of your life. Right? I'm not letting him into my schedule. He's not getting a devotion time from me. I got time for basketball, but time for Christ, I just can't. He's been shut out. You see, this can describe this can describe in um, you know, if you're dating someone and you say, well, I'm not going to bring Christ into this relationship. He'll just ruin it. I'm just going to go this one alone. I'm going to lock him out and we're not even going to talk about See, he's walled off from this area. Even in your budget, you can say, he's not getting into my budget. You've got no room for that. And Christians can wall Christ off from parts of their life. But it's possible also that you, even if you would say you're a Christian, even if you've attended church a few times in your life, even if maybe there's some religion you see, Christ is saying that some of you are not saved. You've, you've never even let him in, period. He's on the outside. He's knocking. He wants to get in. He loves you. That's why he died on the cross for you. But you have never even for the first time opened the door. You've never invited him in. I think this symbolizes many things, but it's a call to repentance he desires that you know him personally. The God of heaven wants you to know him personally. God wants you to know him, and the only way you can do that is through the person of Jesus Christ. Hey, ask yourself this. Is there a time in your life where you heard the truth of Christ, where you understood you needed to receive Christ as Savior and Lord and repent of your sins? Is there ever a time in your life when that happened, where you really understood the condition of your soul without him, and that everything God has for you is in him. And have you allowed him to come in and take his supreme place as Lord of your life? You see, some verses in the Bible illustrate what God does in salvation, and others illustrate what you must do. And here, this is one of the clearest indications that you have to respond to what you hear. You have to open the door. You have to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. Have you ever done that? Because if you haven't, he's deciding what to do with you. And he says here, repent and race to let me in. Run to the door and open it up. Hey, have you seen the new movie Frozen? Have you seen that? How many of you have seen that movie Frozen? My girls love it. They finally got me to watch it. It's not better than Toy Story 3. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's worth seeing. It's basically a story of two sisters and the one sister's dangerous, and so she's got to stay behind a closed door, and the younger sister's like, oh, I wish she would just open the door and come out. So the whole movie's about how one sister shuts the other sister out. There's a locked door that the other sister can't get through, and then the joy when finally the door opens and they invite the community in, right? Listen, that's a great Whenever you see that movie, that's a great illustration of you and Jesus. See, from birth, you're blind. From birth, the door is shut. From birth, you are closed off from Christ, and there has to be a point. You're on the inside with the frigid heart. You're the one not letting him in. And there comes a point when you have to open the door and receive him as Savior and Lord. Repent 
and race to let Christ in. Why? Well, write this down because you'll know God personally. It says here in verse 21, the one who conquers, that, that means you're with me through the end and you're one of mine. I'll grant him to sit with me on the throne, meaning you'll know him personally and he'll share his rule with you forever. And then it says, he who has an ear, uh, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It says, uh, sat down with, I'm sorry, I skipped that one verse. It says, I'll grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So write this down, you'll reign with Christ forever. You'll know God personally and you'll reign with Christ forever. What's the conclusion here? The conclusion is this self-reliant, self-righteous church that was going easy on Christ had to wake up. They were doctrinally resisting the truth. They were refusing to admit their true condition. Jesus was sickened and disgusted and his judgment was moments away. This means some believers who were complacent and doctrinally deficient needed to rise up, worship Christ, and repent. This means some non-believers who were playing church and pretending to be born again needed to get saved. And I wonder right now, as you do a self-evaluation, as you let the Lord, His Word, get into your heart, where are you with Him? Where are you with Him? Do you fit into this category of lukewarm where Christ hasn't decided what to do with you yet, but it's not going to end well, where you have to rise up and run to the door and let him in, is that you? I want to give you a chance right now to respond to what you heard. I want us to all take a moment, and let's pray together to close out this message. Let's pray. Father, I know in this room there are many who relate to you in different ways, but I can't help but believe that you've brought some here today because they know they're in that category. You're knocking at the door and they haven't let you in yet. And so here, Lord, we just take a moment to pray, to invite your presence to move freely in this room. Father, first, I think of those who maybe would consider themselves religious, but the truth is they have lived life without Christ for far too long. They're not saved. They're not going to heaven. But you want to change that because you love them. So, Father, I, I trust that those who are alarmed, those who want to know that they're going to heaven, that they have the forgiveness of Christ, Lord, I invite them to pray along with me to you right now in their own hearts. I invite them to pray this. Lord Jesus, forgive me for locking you out. Forgive me for ignoring you for so long. Forgive me for denying who you are. I ask that you would come into my life Clothe me in white. Help my eyes to see. Forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you are the true one, the Savior who died on the cross and rose again. And I'm trusting you alone to bring me into your kingdom forever. Father, I trust there are also Christians here today who are keeping you out of an area of their life. They feel convicted. They know they're doing it. They don't trust you. They don't believe that your will is good. They're being selfish. And I pray that they would repent. pray that they would let you in. I pray that they would trust you in every area of their lives. And Jesus, I just pray for our church that you would take up your prominent, supreme position as King of kings and Lord of lords. May we never leave you out. May we never downplay who you are. Without apology, may we exalt you as the Lord of heaven and earth. 
Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one and only, our Savior and King. Amen.